0: Let's take our Bibles at this time and take them up and read from them. Hebrews chapter one. We'll read through Hebrews one and also chapter two, and verses one through four, chapter two. The Word of God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and you will all grow old like a garment, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But You are the same, and your years will not fail, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed by us to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Thus far, we read the word of God and that to which we meditate, on which we meditate a few moments this morning is the first verses. Uh, speaking in verses 1 through 4, God says, God, who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who was appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We recalled in a prior sermon on this book of Hebrews, and as we began a series of supper sermons in the book of Hebrews, we recall that God spoke in these last days, has spoken in these last days by his Son, and that is the wonderful thing of his communication to us of of Jesus Christ. In former days, he spoke by the prophets in different ways and visions and dreams and also by the inspiration of the Spirit, so they wrote things down. But now he's spoken in the flesh He's spoken in that incarnate way, which is our redemption. And this is the great word of God, the conclusion of everything he was saying. And it is the best thing he could ever say, because that word in Jesus, spoken in flesh, is salvation to us. And it's the revelation as well of this great God of our salvation that Jesus is, and so we are to hear this word. Now this morning I'm going to embellish upon the magnificent uh, magnificence of the word incarnate, the great word that God has spoken in Jesus, and then apply that again to our hearing. For hearing the word is exactly the burden of Hebrews. It seems that the Jewish Christians of the first century to which this was written were drifting away, and you read of that in chapter 2. They were drifting away. They were forgetting the greatness of the gospel that had been given to them, preached to them. They were being dull of hearing. And beloved, I want to submit to you that that is our very problem today. There's so much to hear of the world and of everything else that claims to be a kind of Savior. We need to focus on hearing Jesus. And may God bless us then in the preaching of the gospel and as we partake of the sacrament of the word of God that our ears can be those which hear the truth and then believe it, are comforted by it, and do it. So God is set forth here in Jesus Christ as this great word, this great word, so great that there is a sevenfold peon of praise to the word of God, Jesus Christ, that's delivered right at the outset of the writing of the book of Hebrews. Everything, really, that follows in Hebrews follows this not only because it's the next thing in line of writing, but it follows logically and it follows spiritually. The setting forth of the greatness of the word of God, that communication in Jesus, the salvation that is in him, is the basis for a godly response. So we set forth that word as we comment a few things about what is said of him. In the first place, God sets forth here in his inspired word that the word that he's spoken in these last days by his son is the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. That's the first thing. And it may be a question, why this order of things? Why is this first? But I want to suggest to you that this allusion to a psalm, Psalm 2, in verse 8, is the linking up of the mediator, the great savior and inheritor of the nations, with his being the son. See, the prophets through whom God spoke were servants, but this one now, whom he's spoken in these last days, is his son, and to embellish upon that, to corroborate and to prove that. He cites the psalm here, Psalm 2, verse 8. He is the son whom he's appointed heir of all things. So there's this greatness of Jesus described as the son, and as this son who is the heir of the whole universe. There's something... Of cosmic praise that's given to this son word of Jesus. In fact, that's how he goes on, he speaks in cosmic glowing terms, universal glowing terms of Jesus, when it says, through him, this is the second thing, through him, this son, also he made the worlds. John, the apostle in John 1, verse 3, also speaks of this. And so does Colossians in the great Christological passage that says that by Jesus all things were made. But here, again, it's reiterated in Hebrews. Jesus is the one by whom and through whom God made the worlds. Not only is the heir of all worlds, all are his subjects, All are His for His praise, but He made the whole world and all the universe. There may be an allusion here as well to Proverbs 8 and the wisdom of God that's said to have been, in verse 22 and following, with God when He made the worlds. And Jesus, we know, is the wisdom of God the way that God is going to relate to this world that he makes so that he gets the glory in every unfolding of the work of his hands. That's God's wisdom. There's something here of God's own glory that's revealed in the Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, so that there be a wisdom about God in this it's a great glorification of God in the sun. In fact, that Jesus has to do with the glory of God is brought out in this other description of Him, for He's the one, verse 3, is the, who is the brightness of the glory of God. And children, the brightness of the glory of God, that Jesus is, means He's the sun beam the S-O-N beam of God. He's what God would show of his greatness, just like the sunbeams on this rare sunny day in Grand Rapids. They show the great power and heat of the sun. but We cannot see the sun itself or our eyes would burn up. Nevertheless, we are led back to the sun, the source of the light, by the beams. So Jesus leads us back to God, who is the source of the light of the greatness of Jesus. He is the effulgence, or the brightness, of the glory of God, the radiance of all that God would show in this world. That's that great, Word. That's that best word that God shows us. He shows us Himself in His greatness and majesty in the sending forth, the shining forth of the sun. Further, He's said to be the express image of the person of God, is Jesus. Here's another way of describing just how divine Jesus is. He is personally divine, the very image of the substance of God. Just as he's the sunbeam shining forth from God, so he is even more than that. He's the representation and embodiment of all that God is. That word uh, saying that he is the image of God is a word used only here. It means he's the character, the express character of God. In other words, Jesus is what God essentially is. There is a God, and we know him in Jesus, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, so says Colossians. Here, The text says he's the express image of the person of God. In other words, if you see Jesus, even as he says in John, you see the Father. You don't have to look anywhere else. This is the way to God and the revelation of God, the great glory of his majesty, the beam of the sun, and the sun itself in human flesh, in a way that we can receive this sight of God so that our eyes are not burned up. These are ways that the writer to the Hebrews describes this best word of God. He is the one of whom the psalmist spoke. He's appointed heir of all things. He's the great agent of creation through whom all the world's eons, not just things of the universe, but the history of the universe, was made and set in motion. He's the brightness of the glory of God. He's the express character or representation of God. And further... He upholds all things by the word of his power. Another expression used other ways in the Bible, in Colossians 1 as well, it picks up on this uh, description of Jesus not only as the creative word, but as the providential word. So that God, through Jesus his Son, and in the communion of the Spirit, made all things, but also God by His Son in the communion of the Spirit, the triune God, upholds all things. Now here we have to remember that there is a a dimension of His holding all things and upholding them that is beyond the mythology of the ages, which speaks of some force or some god, may be called Atlas, who's there holding the world on his shoulders and bearing the burden of that world, this strong Atlas god with a small g. Jesus is no Atlas. And the idea seems to be that he upholds all things to govern them, So not only to sustain them in their existence, but Jesus upholds all things, small and great, to carry them forth to their purpose. He upholds all things and directs all things, governs all things, which is nothing less or different than the view of the providence of God for the glory of this God. Now, Those are five things, five things that we could say speak of Jesus' greatness in a cosmic or universal way of describing him as this God of all this universe. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying at the very onset of his book. Have to get this if we're going to go any further in Hebrews and understand anything of the significance of the message of Hebrews. But further, in the sixth and seventh description of Jesus, it speaks of him who relates personally to mankind. He's this cosmic, this universal Agent and God of creation is Jesus, but he's also this God of our salvation. And so we read that he who upheld and upholds all things by the word of his power, by himself purged our sins. That has to do with Jesus relating to this creation not only but to people in it. He is, in fact, described here as someone who's the one, who is the greatest word that God could ever have said, who's the greatest God of our salvation, who could save sinners. He purged the sins of his people, And the writer to the Hebrews is alluding to that. He's writing to Jewish Christians here. Jesus died for them. And these people have to be reminded right away that this great one, who's greater, as we'll see, than angels and any other created thing, is the great Savior. So the elect of God are mentioned here, for whom Jesus would shed his blood and purge them purify them of every sin and defilement and guilt. There's an allusion here to what the rest of the book of Hebrews is all about, the priestly work of Jesus. And so you have here something that will be elaborated upon and which will lend itself to the setting forth of the glory of Jesus as it speaks of the cleansing power and the once-for-all sacrifice of His Son, something we celebrate, of course, in the Lord's Supper. So there's this wonderful way that God is now introducing this book to the Hebrews, lest they drift from the faith. He heaps praise upon praise of this great word that he's spoken, this personal word, who has cosmic significance. He's the great God and mediator of creation, and he's also the Savior. And he's instilling in the people here to whom he writes, therefore, not only awe, but gratitude. And we speak these things today so that you're filled not only with awe, at the cosmic significance of Jesus with regard to the world and all things, but with regard to him who's the God of our salvation, and we need to be grateful. And finally, it's said of Jesus that the one who purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The seventh great thing that's said of Jesus And there's an allusion to Psalm 110. We read that for our morning devotions at our table and where it says there in Psalm 110 that the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. The people shall be made willing in the day of your power. Here, after the... Humiliation and death and crucifixion of Jesus is set forth is his exaltation. Something to which Philippians speaks when it says that he who came down is now exalted on high and he's given this name above every other name, that's Jesus, and before that name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there is the best word that God could ever speak and has ever spoken. Not to say that the prior words were just good and maybe in Isaiah, the Mount Everest of prophecy, they were better. But now in Jesus, they're best. The idea of Jesus, having, uh, God having spoken the best word in this sense is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has ever spoken. Prophets from Moses to Malachi, they spoke the good word of God. They spoke of the best word of God. There's only one word of God after all and all of divine quality. But now God has spoken in such a way veiled in flesh in the best way possible even for God. This is the accolade of accolades, the praises of praises that God gives to His Word and reveals, therefore, is due to Himself. The Word of God in Jesus, the great the effulgence of His glory, the express image of His person. This cosmic Savior God is the Savior God, to be sure. And in fact, if you look at Hebrews closely, just in these first four verses, you find every aspect of the greatness of God our Savior and Jesus revealed in the threefold office. In the first place, The best word of God is better than all the prophets. God spoke then, but now he's spoken now. He's the prophet. Jesus, who has purged all our sins, is set forth as the priest. And then Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, sat there in this wonderful divine Regnancy and divinity and majesty, he's set there, he's set forth as the great king, prophet, priest, and king. That's our Jesus. And what's going to follow, and it's already alluded to in our text, is a comparison of Jesus, therefore, and a contrast of Jesus between himself and angels. They are really the subject and the the foil against which Jesus is played in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus compared to the angels, but then compared to Moses and compared to Aaron and compared to anything, the incomparable Jesus. I'm not going to get into the contrast, but if you notice, there's a key word in this verse 4, that Jesus is by his exaltation, become so much better than the angels. That word better leads us to a major theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than this and that and the other thing, and so is his offering once for all for sin. So is his ministry. So is his tabernacle. So is his glory. He's better than it all. And 13 times in 13 chapters... The word better is used, and this is to point out that we should hear him. We should have done with the lesser things of angels, who may be great, and of the ministry of men, which may be somehow significant, and just hear this word, Jesus. He's spoken to us, after all. Go back to the, the import of verse one. God, at various times, in various ways, spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us. He's spoken to us. Do you hear God speaking to you right now? He spoke to the first century saints the Hebrew Christians. He's spoken to countless of people of God throughout the centuries and every continent, in every trial, in every temptation. He's communicated to us the best thing that He could ever say. He's spoken to us. And the import of that Just that word spoken to us is that he's spoken for us and he's spoken in us. The word made flesh is the living and abiding word of our life. That's God. Hear that word. Hear that word. Spoken to us In the best way that God could ever speak, and here you were scratching your head and wondering what to do now or what to hear now, who to listen to now, seeking wisdom from here and there and and the other place. And God reminds us, I've spoken to you. in The best way that I know how I speak as a man here God, you see, in Hebrews is speaking to a people that has more than two ears, really. They have lots of ears for lots of different things. And it seems are so prone to have two hearts, to be double-hearted and double-minded, to want to hear other things. It could be even that The Hebrews were developing a mystery of angels or a religion of angels, a mystery religion of those mysterious beings who were never meant to be worshipped but were merely servants, servants of God and of God's people. And nowadays, there's all kinds of things that we could listen to. It's striking to me that Increasingly, it, it, it's all about, and the, the things are, the lines are being drawn according to what people listen to. In the media, you listen to this, you listen to CNN, listen to Fox, and I'm putting them on the same side here. You listen to that political opinion or that, or you listen to the Word of God. They tell you what's good, they tell you what's bad, they tell you what you ought to do, what you ought not to do here. And let's face it, CNN, Fox, you lump them all together if they don't have the Word of God. And then you have God's speech here in Bethlehem and on the cross and in the empty tomb and in the inspired Word. God. That's the word. And even as the apostle in 2 Corinthians 4 compares afflictions with glory and says, on the scale of God, afflictions are light. There is nothing compared to the glory and significance of God. Even so, All the words of men compared to the weight of the word of God, they're light. There is nothing compared to what God's weighty word means. Are we listening? The scientists will tell us that there's a mystery behind everything in life and they're trying to discover how the world began how it's sustained and there's called a theory called toe t o e theory of everything they want to find something do the physicists do the chemists do the biologists do the brains of the world that'll link everything together in all of their philosophizing, really, and they're seeking to be objective scientists, it's it's vanity. Here's the word of the cosmos. Carl Sagan, notwithstanding, great astronomer in the world. Here's the word of our astronomy, and here's the world of the word of this world and the worlds in our solar system and beyond. The great thing called this universe. And here's the word, especially of the religion that ought to be leading to the worship of the people of God and the glorifying of the God of grace. Here it is. Hear it. And I want to speak to something tonight about. The sorrows of this world, but something I spoke at the graveside yesterday at Evan's family, Evan, and about how we can hear the best ever and always in our life. Because that's the calling we've got to hear. We do a radical thing as Christians. Yesterday, we were met with death, and we said goodbye, and there were tears, and it was all about our visiting God's word in the house of mourning. You know that verse, right, in Ecclesiastes, it speaks of it being better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth. That's Ecclesiastes 7. Better go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. That's the end of all men. Living will take it to heart. Sorrow's better than laughter. For a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You brought out yesterday at that obvious house of mourning, a funeral and a graveside, that the houses of mourning really are the Places that we go to speak to one another of the the sorrows of the world. Houses of mirth or those houses of fools who go and they laugh about sorrows or they're otherwise really avoiding the real cause of sorrow and they're trying to fix it. They're trying to get by and they're trying to take a drug and do this and that in their houses, and they're all fools, and we are fools if our heart is in the house of mirth. This is the wisdom of God here in Ecclesiastes. You see, in this life that's painted here in Ecclesiastes as is, is vanity, everything under the sun is vanity, you can't find wisdom in the house of fools. Because in the house of fools you hear man and his laughter and his cackling and his stratagems for getting by, the fellowship of fools. We don't want to go there, ever. There's only one alternative, the house of mourning. And yes, we went there yesterday. Some of us paid our respects, as we say, to the bereaved family. And really, in a way, beloved, we go there every day and to the house of mourning and to the house of God's people, the fellowship of the people of God. Churches like that. It's kind of a house of mourning in the best sense of the word. Because here we're taught reality. Here we're taught of the sin of man to reject the word of God, yea, as God said, Is this all God can say? Is that his best foot forward? Is that his right arm, his strength, in a broken son, in a broken body, and poured out blood? Surely there's a better song to sing than that. And in their house of fools and of mirth, they strategize other gods and That God of tolerance is right up there in their their cathedral of gods. Anything but God's son and God, therefore, himself. In the churches where you learn that that's foolishness, that's sin. First thing we learn, catechumens, in order to live and die happily in God is sin. You've got to learn that. Don't avoid it. Don't avoid it. You're not avoiding sin, are you? Your sin and my sin. Here's where we learn it. Here's where God, through his servant, confronts us, including me. And we're told, you're not the answer. Your words aren't the important words. My son's word is. And you're seeking to go back to Jewry as the Hebrew Christians were. or oh, you're seeking to go somewhere else because you think life has passed you by and even God has passed you by. That's all vanity. Don't do that. You're thinking that you're not going to be content ever, say, unless you get married or unless you have a better job or unless you have more friends. That's all vanity, too. That's not the Word of God because the Word of God is, I've spoken to you, my son Jesus... And that's everything to you, too. I've spoken to you. I've redeemed you. I renew you. I speak to you today. I love you. That's his word. Believe me. And so in the house of mourning, we learn how to hear of the Savior from sin, and then of the life, as I said at the funeral, I say it now, of service. So we've fallen, we've departed, we've, we've been in, a, in a, a funk, as we call it, just not knowing what to do. And God clears our minds. Do the next thing, he says because I have done the greatest thing, and I've spoken the great word. That's all you need to hear. To sort things out, not only, but to be wise and faithful and a praise to God. Beloved, God has spoken the best word. Let us hear him. Hear him and let us live by faith. Amen.